Eureka! This is what Archimedes shouted as he ran down the streets of ancient Syracuse fully nude. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't having a mental breakdown. He had just discovered what we know as the Archimedes Principle, which is the upward buoyant force that is exerted on a body immersed in fluid is equal to the weight of the fluid that the body displaces. Now, I won't endorse your discovery process using clothes or otherwise, but there's a lesson to be learned here. This moment is ingrained in the annals of history with its scientific significance, but also due to the shock value of the nature in which it was revealed. In other words, how you share your message can be just as important as what your message actually is. You can be the operator of the best subscription product in the world, but if nobody hears about it, then no one's going to use it. It's obvious to say, but executing it in the right manner is really, really less obvious. A flashy campaign isn't always going to do it justice either. Occasionally, you'll have to really get in the trenches and educate an entire market. And perhaps no one is better suited to talk about this than Eric Santos, co-founder and CEO of RD Station. When they began, marketing automation was still in its infancy, especially in Brazil, where the company is based. Not only was he able to form a stronghold in Brazil, but he and the team expanded RD Station to 20 countries and 25,000 happy customers. What were the secrets to his success? Well, to find out that and more, you'll have to listen to what's coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Eric Santos goes deep on all things growth. We talk about embracing complexity when selling to SMBs, how to be successful in an emerging market, the playbooks to educate an ecosystem, the advantage of building a company in Brazil, as well as managing people and problems. So my name is Eric Santos. I'm the CEO of Resultados Digitais, or RD for short. As we call it, we are the leading marketing automation platform for emerging markets, for SMBs in emerging markets. We have about 12,000 customers here in Brazil, more, almost 1,000 customers in other markets too. About 700 people at the office, uh, been around for seven years. That's it in a nutshell. That's the, the back yeah. of the baseball card, yeah. as they say. No, that's awesome. And is it something where... Because you're 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 not from Florinopolis, yeah. like most people aren't from here who are in tech, which yeah. is kind of interesting. So, how did you get here? Like, what happened? What was that? Yeah, like? I came yeah. down in '99, so almost 20 years ago. Okay. Uh, I came down for college, uh, which is a normal thing uh, if you want to study engineering or, or computer science, because there's a good university here. And then basically just decided to stay. Yeah, it's been my home for the last 20 years. That's yeah. Cool. And what were you doing before RD? So I had a, another company. I started a company right after college, 2004. The company was in the mobile space. So we used to develop mobile apps and, and sites for brands. So that was 2004. So three years before the iPhone came out. So this totally different landscape. So we managed to build a good business. It was a good, like profitable uh, service business. It got to about 30 people in total. It was doing okay. We were already a reference in the market here, but it wasn't very scalable. We didn't have a product that we could basically scale the company. And I decided, you know, given the the situation with my former partners there, decided to sell my shares of that company to, to them. 
and then uh, decided to start RD basically to scratch my own itch because yeah. we we did a lot of inbound marketing for ourselves back then, but uh, we didn't have uh, enough tools or knowledge or methodology to really build it uh, the right way. So I figured that that was the same problem that most of the SMBs in Brazil had. And there was no way that an American solution like some of the companies that were growing in the U.S. would be able to really solve those things here due to a lot of different factors. Yeah. We thought that we knew a lot about the market. Uh, we had the connections there here, too. So decided to sure. start a company to what solve this problem. What are some of those things, right? Because you could say, I mean, email's email, right? You know, yeah. like stuff like that. And I think that that's... A lot of people, when they look at, just take like MailChimp, for example, yeah. and obviously they've been very successful and you're like, well, it's just email, yeah. right? And so what are some of those things that are specific to Brazil? Yeah, it's not about product at all. I would say that probably on the product side, uh, you got to have a simpler product to deal with the SMBs here because usually they don't know what to do. So we need to skew a little bit more towards the, the simpler side. But the first thing is that they didn't know what, in our case, what marketing automation was and what were they supposed to do with a tool like that. So we needed to invest a lot in education and a lot in content marketing, events, workshops, whatever. So that was part of the, the, the problem. The second part of the problem was the fact that most companies in Brazil and Latin America in general, they expect a certain level of service from uh, even from soft, software companies. And then we had to invest a little bit more in customer success than most companies usually do when they serve SMBs. But we also developed our, uh, a partner channel to help us with that last mile service. So that was really important part of the equation for us here. And the third part, I would say it's more about the price slash commercial policies, like the way that you charge your customer here. Just to give an example, half of our customers here in Brazil, they pay us through this thing called boleto, which is just something that's specific for Brazil. Like nobody even understands that outside of Brazil. And we have to accept that because that's the way the most SMBs deal on a day-to-day basis. And when we go to Colombia and Mexico, we see the same thing. They, they have their own boletos. So I don't remember exactly the names, but I think in Mexico is PSC, in Colombia is Baloto. So that's the kind of thing that we say that we embrace the complexity of the local ecosystem here. We charge them in local currency. Of course, we, we have a lower price point. We also have contracts in their local language. We use their local payment system. So those are the kind of things that usually, I'm not even only talking about the marketing automation space, talking about all the other SaaS spaces here. Usually the American companies don't want to go through the hassle. Yeah. And, and I think they're right. I mean, there's plenty of opportunity to just to have a standard offer. But we understand that to really crack the code of creating a company in an emerging market, you have to embrace those kinds of complexity especially yeah. when you sell to SMBs. I mean, obviously you've lived here, you know this, the, the market, just as a consumer and as a business person from your previous business. Did you feel like you just kind of knew these nuances or was it something where you you were able to learn? Because it's, it's kind of funny when, because a U.S. company is, is going to come to Brazil, you know, they're probably already here at some level yeah. that's a competitor yeah. or... 
you know, even apart from your space, there's people who go to different countries all the time. And, and sometimes that flops and sometimes that goes really, really well. Yeah. Do you have a strategy now when you're going into Mexico, like to kind of research some of these things or do you just kind of know what's going to happen? Yeah, we, we did a bunch of things kind of intuitively in the beginning. And uh, after the fact, we tried to rationalize the process because what were the things that we actually were able to create sustainable competitive advantage for our business, given the fact that we embraced these challenges and limitations here. So now I, I, I have a much better understanding of these things, these elements that usually you have to do uh, if you want to be successful in an emerging market. For our international expansion project, we, we have kind of a playbook for that. In that playbook, we have all those different elements really kind of described there. I think that coming up with that playbook was only possible because we were from an emerging market. We grew a company here in Brazil, knowing the ecosystem here. And when we go to different markets, like, like for instance, Colombia, Mexico, they are much more similar to Brazil than they are to the US or to UK or other developed markets. So we, we were able to draw these parallels and create this framework for us to go yeah. abroad. That's cool. Yeah. It's like a humility that probably some US companies don't have because they were able to get so big, you know, based just on the US or, you know, English speaking Europe. And now all of a sudden they have to come to, you know, even Eastern Europe or even South yeah. America where like, yeah, there's, you know, two predominant languages, but every country is different, you know, which is interesting. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of that, but at the same time, I, I don't, I don't feel that they have necessarily the, the wrong strategy. And the way that I see is that when I see, let's say, when I take any given developed market, including the US, of course, you see like this pyramid with the, you know, the VSB, SMBs, mid-market enterprise, when you see the same pyramid in the in an emerging market, it's kind of dislocated down a little bit. So what's a mid-market ticket size for a company in the U.S. is actually a enterprise size ticket year. So the way that I see most companies do, including Salesforce, for instance, uh, here in Brazil, is that they have the large accounts in the, in the market, but they're not able to penetrate to mid-market in the SMB sector. Those companies here, they require different kind of a approach. And Speaking of like the companies here, like I know educating the market, even though, I mean, at the end of the day, when you're selling to a business, they want to make more money. Yeah. So like you feel like it should be easy. Like, hey, we help you email people. Hey, we yeah. help you market. But what was that process like, you know, educating someone on, you know, something that seems now to be so obvious, but then was probably yeah. astronomically difficult? Not all the companies, we, we, we have 20 million uh, at SMBs here in Brazil, I'm 100% sure that the vast majority of the companies still don't know what market automation is and uh, what they're supposed to do with that. But of course, the situation is totally different now than seven years ago when we got started. I had this data recently, just capturing data from Datanize and trying to organize it. Brazil is actually the third country with the most, with the highest number of companies using market automation which doesn't make any sense for any logical, economical reason, except for the fact that we educated the market here and we basically created a market here, which is also something that I, I say all the time, that most markets are, are much larger than they appear. It's just a matter of educating the market, but that's a separate topic. When we started the company, we knew we were 100% sure that market opportunity was there, but it wasn't there yet. 
So we needed to educate them to first make them realize that that was something that would improve their business and then educate them on how to do that. So there's kind of a two-step process. And we did that through a bunch of different tactics and initiatives. Of course, content marketing, blogging, you know, doing ebooks, webinars, uh, the works. But we also did a lot of uh, evangelization on the ground. And uh, it started also throwing events uh, in 2013. That was our f- first edition of our conference, RD Summit, that back then was only like 250 people attending. Uh, we just had our... Now the island shuts down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thousands of people. It's yeah. great, yeah. So we had almost 12,000 people this year. So that's part of this process. And funny thing is that I actually figure out along the way that this process was necessarily not only for acquiring customers, but also for acquiring training partners that helped help us with the less model service and also for developing employees too. Because that's the other thing that's, you know, building a SaaS company in an emerging market, usually you don't have other companies to poach people from. So you want to have people in customer success or marketing or sales or product, you basically have to train them because there is no other success story here or we are especially here in Florianopolis we are at this point where you see talent moving from company to company still in a very healthy way I'd say for everyone involved but you know when we started we basically had to make customer success manager inbound marketers inbound sales reps so that, those kind of things so we had to do that that through education as well yeah. and I think now it's a it's something that's a strength that we have as a business that reflects a lot in cost of acquisition, scale, cost of service too, uh, given the fact that we can train people that are new to the job and get them up and running within very few months. So yeah, that's cool. When you think about like, if we go one layer down there, right? Because let's talk maybe first about like educating Brazilian companies about marketing automation. So what does that look like? Like you mentioned like blogs and webinars and yeah. stuff. Is there is there like a framework there or is it more just literally every day just saying the word marketing automation until they care about it or something like that? Uh, we had to build a framework. Nothing like really new, but we had to organize a model in a way that people could understand. Because when you, when you talk about marketing automation, you usually... You have a bunch of like technical things that you you have to talk about, like email marketing, social media, SEO, conversion optimization, analytics. But people don't make sense of all that when you just throw stuff at them. We came up with a kind of a funnel model where we established these five things that they uh, they were supposed to do uh, to drive their business: attract qualified visitors, convert them into leads, nurture those leads throughout the funnel, close more deals out of those leads and analyze and optimize the whole process. It's a very simple framework, but we we had to explicitly create that and propagate that, not only to our potential customers, but also to our partners too. So we all could talk the same language. And then after a while, we, you know, it be, kind of became the standard way of how people communicate regarding online marketing here in Brazil. So that was helpful and it was Part of my talk this year at our summit, I'm trying to expand that idea more towards the customer success part of the journey too. We 
just acquired a, a CRM company, so we expanded our offer to the sales side too. But regardless of that, we're thinking only about the customer acquisition part now. But the way that you should acquire customers, you should be paying attention a lot to lifetime value, that kind of stuff that wasn't in the vocabulary yeah. five, six years ago. So trying to kind of expand the framework a little bit totally. so people can understand that. So it's almost, and I feel like it's meta for you as well, right? Because this is exactly what you're doing, right? Yeah. Like for your own company to yeah. like acquire leads and awareness yeah. and stuff. So I think what really works out well there is you start with like the kernel of they want to build their business. Yeah. You know, they want money, which isn't always true, right? Yeah. Like there's some businesses where they're just like, no, I don't want to grow because then I have to hire three more people yeah. and I don't want to deal with that, yeah. right? So it's like awareness, like all the way down through that conversion. And yeah. I think it's kind of cool because then it it's almost like a self-fulfilling loop because you get them, okay, do more here, yeah. then do more there, then do more there. Now customer success, which yeah. I think is cool. And when you think about internally, when you were attracting those you know, folks to be customer success or inbound reps, like tell us about that, right? Because there's some really good positives in there. Like if you go grab someone who was a really good uh, salesperson at a, or a customer service person at a store, right? Yeah. That's kind of a good analog, but then they don't understand tech and they don't yeah. understand like the space. Like, how did you train that? How did you get that yeah. for, you know, a place that has a big talent pool, but maybe not as innate of a talent pool as some of the other ecosystems? Yeah, yeah we certainly had to learn a lot about uh, the right profile. So we made a lot of mistakes along the way. One thing that we realized is that we need to find talent, like raw talent, not experienced talent with um, any kind of a or even tech or sales or customer success. So the way that we figured that out is that when we, you know, after a number of years, we could see that the best people that had the most success here at RD were actually, they didn't have any necessarily any former experience in the field, but they, they had a lot of uh, very interesting things that they did before RD while in college or right after college. We understood that and we found a way to uh, recruit and screen those people and then have very specific playbooks that, they, that we could train them on. Customer success playbook, sure. inbound sales playbook, inbound marketing playbook. So we, we realized that the technical part is not very difficult, uh, at least for entry-level jobs. Sure. And I would argue that also for like entry-level leaders or the next step on the in the technical journey too, we feel that you know we actually need experience more certain senior levels or very specialized people in different functions. Mm -hmm. But then we we found a way to find these people and get a referral mechanism as well. So people were here, love the company, love the culture, and then they can refer their friends to we're usually like-minded, we usually share the same values, have the same attitude towards work. And then we give them a bonus, but it's just not something very meaningful. It's more about the process or yeah. the reinforcement of that, that, that idea. And then we get those people in, do the same thing. And then today, about 60% of our new employees are actually active recommendations from uh, current That's employees. That's really high, right? Yeah. I don't have benchmarks on that. That seems crazy. I don't have the benchmarks either, That's but crazy. yeah, yeah. It, it helps us a lot. So when you say you built like a, like a, like a profile, yeah. like what do you guys look for? Like what do you look for in, like if someone's obviously a customer success person from another yeah. company, it's a little bit different, but like what do you look for to kind of say like, okay, this is someone who can be successful? We try to measure potential and stickness to our company values. So 
One of the things that we, for instance, one of our company values is outteach. We say uh, that, you know, we are where we are because we teach everything that we can to the community. And uh, not only the marketing stuff, but also like how to manage a company or how to, you know, how to recruit a customer success manager or whatever. And this summit, I think it's a good example of that because we have tracks in different subjects and different topics. So I'll teach is one of the things that we value the most. And when we, when we recruit uh, somebody here, we try to see if they had that kind of behavior in some other initiative, even if it's if it was really small, but if they had a, like a small workshop for whatever topic or if they try to, you know, be like a, like a assistant to a professor or, or if they created some kind of blog or whatever, if they are active in social media. So those are elements that show that this person might have a more of that outteach component of our culture here. So we try to measure them against our values and against some of the qualities for a specific functions that we have here. Of course, sales reps need to be more, you know, outgoing. Now we have the data also to benchmark against the, the best people that we have here in the office here. So we, we were able to kind of weigh all the criteria according to the to the function. Sure. And then we have a, you know, better sense of whether the person is going to be successful here or not. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of, like you said, like making mistakes and calibrating and kind of yeah. like replicating and things like that, which I think is good. It's pretty hard to get the thing right up front, I would say, yeah. What's it like building a company in Brazil? It's fun, but very challenging. I feel that, you know, if I were in the U.S., for instance, many things would be much easier, including Fundraising, for instance, but at the same time, I feel that we kind of owe to the country to, you know, build a good story here so people can see that you can actually build a world-class company here in Brazil. And uh, we are definitely at a stage here in the ecosystem where we see some good companies coming out of Brazil now, IPO in NASDAQ or getting bought by Americans or Chinese companies. So definitely good stories coming out already. But in, in the enterprise B2B uh, sector, not so much yet. We feel that we have the, that opportunity at, and at the same time, big responsibility to, you know, perhaps becoming an inspiring story for the next generation of entrepreneurs here. It's kind of interesting because, like, we talked about this about Florinopolis a little bit before yeah. filming. Like, there's been a ton of companies here. Like, like industry is like something in Brazil. Yeah. Like in other countries, industry is evil, you know, and yeah. bad. Like, where do you think that comes from? Just the size of the market, you know, the language barrier with everyone kind of around, you know, Brazil. Like, where do you think like that industriousness comes from? You mean Brazil or Florianópolis? Brazil, yeah, or Florianópolis, both, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that there are some uh, structural challenges that most SaaS companies outside of Brazil have a hard time trying to overcome them or grasp the reality here, which uh, also creates big opportunities for local companies to explore the local market. As I was mentioning, I think this is uh, at the same time a blessing and a curse for us Brazilians because we we do have a pretty big market here. And uh, but at the same time, you know, most of the companies they tend to focus on the local market for too long. And then when they want to grow abroad, they usually face 
a bunch of different problems. That is our case, by the way. But yeah, I think that different than, like, say, Chile, for instance. When you start a company in Chile, you don't have much of a local market, so you have to, you know, think global from the get-go. And then it's hard to create a company in Chile to compete with the global companies in the global economy. So I think that Brazil is actually a very good backyard for you to establish a good business and then if you have the mindset and then become a competitive global company uh, because the market's big enough for you to you know, create a product or get funding or yeah. whatever. Back to what, what I was saying, I think that we're going to see a lot more good stories in the next few years that would encourage other American investors, for instance, you know, Sequoia is doing investments here and Dresden Horowitz. So those guys five years ago, they didn't want to hear about Brazil. And now we're seeing that they're starting to see that some interesting stuff is happening here. And uh, I think we'll, we're going to see this positive kind of virtual cycle from, from now on. Yeah, that's cool. What's something that you struggled with personally in your career that you overcame? Something that I didn't have connections when I started. Frankly, when I started my first first company, tech entrepreneurship in general wasn't a viable option here in Brazil. So the, the, the ecosystem here in Floripa is way more different than it was five or 10 years ago, like totally different. So I had to build these connections both here in Brazil and also um, in the Valley, in the U.S., with folks like you. That's something that I had to invest a lot of time and energy uh, to really do that because uh, I didn't have a platform. So that was really important for me in general in my career. But it took me a long time to, to get to you know significant place. Well, it's tough, right? You want to stay heads down and do the job, but then the job requires people. Yeah. And like people, it's like a whole different skill set. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's something you still struggle with? Yeah, people. people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Managing, yeah, managing is hard. And uh, managing a high growth company is harder because you have to kind of rethink the company every six months. I think that's something that I learned a lot, especially here at ID, because we've been through all these different phases. We have now 700 companies, all companies totally different than when we had. 300 or 150 or 50 or 30 or 10. At the same time, I think that I'm still trying to figure out a lot of stuff along the way. And we are just doing our planning for next year. So I'm trying to not only think about the strategy for the company, but also what's going to be my role in this next phase. So this recurring topic in my head, and of course, I make a lot of mistakes. But at the same time, I think that it's something that investor Keith Rabois yeah. is speaking about Aaron Levy. That thing struck me when uh, he mentioned that Aaron was, you know, struggling with this with his own development as a CEO. And uh, Keith told him that nobody learns how to be a CEO except for being a CEO and doing the job. So you gotta study, you gotta connect with other people, have mentors, have coaches, whatever. But you got to be there and you learn doing that. And something that I'm, I, I think that, you know, in general, it's hard, but it's doable. And I think that it's just a matter of investing time and effort and energy to become a better, better leader every day. Yeah, so awesome. it's been working so far, but it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Hard. 
Well, the problems just keep changing. Yeah. Right. And it's not even the scale of the problem. It's just always like the surface area just gets so much more dense, which is kind of intense. So it's funny because I, I usually say that the smaller problems don't get to me as much anymore, but when they do, boy, they are big. Yeah. Yeah. Which is good. I mean, like, I think we interviewed Brian Halligan, HubSpot, which is obviously, you know, in your space a bit. And he kind of said this and and I didn't really get it at first. Um, He's like, so my job is to make two really big decisions a year. Now the size of the, like, they're very big decisions, yeah. but there's only two of them. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, interesting. Cause like, I think when you're earlier on, you're making hundreds of decisions yeah. and it just gets painful because yeah. you probably don't know enough to make half of them, which is interesting. Yeah. I'm not making only two decisions yeah, yeah, per year. Yeah. Well, they're a little further along. By the way, right? no, yeah, Brian yeah. is a great guy. I admire him yeah. a lot. And uh, it's, it's kind of the same thing that Jeff Bezos mentioned uh, when he was being interviewed and he mentioned that he sleeps eight hours per night. And he was like, man, as a big top executive, I, I don't get paid by making thousands of small decisions. I get paid by making very few decisions, but hopefully with very high quality. Yeah. And then I won't be able to make high quality decisions if I don't get enough sleep. So that's very yeah. true. A huge shout out to Eric Santos for doing the podcast. Now you know what it takes surrounding all things growth. Today, we talked about embracing complexity when selling to SMBs, how to be successful in an emerging market, the playbook to educate an ecosystem, the advantage of building a company in Brazil, as well as managing people and problems. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell in the show, we'd appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen and watch. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing. And, you know, we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.